Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, July the 5th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. You may remember our series with the leaders of the smaller parties a couple of months back, in which we talked to the leaders of the Greens, Aim to Labour and People Before Profit. And just as we were beginning that series, the Social Democrats joint leaders, Roisin Shortall and Catherine Murphy, stepped down and shortly afterwards, Cork Southwest TD, Holly Cairns, became leader without a contest. All of which is an extremely long-winded way of explaining why it's taken so long to to complete the series, which is what we're going to do today with Holly Kearns joining us in the studio. You're very welcome. Thank you so much, Hugh. And Pat Lee, he is also here. I'm here too. In the bad cop role, Pat. Ready, ready when you are, Hugh. <laughs> OK, you're most unlikely bad cop. To, to be fair. Before we get into the important stuff, which is your leadership. You get my and the, Yeah, like even, even less convincing. Before we get into the, um, uh, the important stuff or the meaty stuff, uh, we're kind of all bewildered by what's happening in RTE right now. We're recording um, just at the moment, I think, that the, the media committee, the Arctis Media Committee, is about to meet again. What do you make of it all? It's hard to capture that in words at this point. I think it's an omni-shambles and... You know, I think when you rewind back to when this story first broke, it was about secret payments out of a slush fund to Ortiz's top earner. So the very least that all of us would have expected is that Ortiz would have known how many of those accounts there were. And it transpires in the last 24 hours that they didn't even give the correct information about that at the committee last week. Uh, my colleague Catherine, um, Catherine Murphy asked the chief financial officer how many barter accounts there were. He said, no, there's just one. And then it turns out there's three. And I just think... Three for now. Three for now. That's the thing. And people now are even saying, well, is there three? And I just think, I like, there's a couple of things that are really, I think, coming to the surface. And a silver lining, perhaps, for the organisation, but more so for the staff, I think, in RTE, is that people are really realising their own value in public service broadcasting. And I think there's more and more acknowledgement of how phenomenal a lot of the staff in RTE are, many of which are, most of which are on modest wages and all of those things. Um, but like Shuni Ratla, the, the chair said when this story first broke, trust was broken. And the fact that we're still getting half-truths and it's still a drip feed of information, I think just compounds that. And at this stage, you know, we're however long into this, and actually RTE knew, since the beginning of March. So they've had all of this time to piece together all of the information that everybody's looking for, somehow haven't managed to do that um, and are giving all of this incorrect information. They've just compounded that distrust. And in order to rebuild the trust, they'd want to very quickly change their approach because I think the other thing that's quite shocking or confusing perhaps about it is that it's the national broadcaster. We trust them and we see them constantly holding other organisations, individuals, political parties, politicians, you name it, to account, a bit like the Irish Times. And to see that they aren't really giving all of the information that allows the, you know, the committees and all of those things to hold them to account just feels a bit outrageous. And There's a reluctance in 
Uh, actually, just uh, but on the, on that point, it seems to me that RT has covered the story pretty well, actually. Mm. But yeah. uh, yeah. uh, but there's a great reluctance in government to say things like heads are going to have to roll, which seems obvious from the outside, and I understand that reluctance within uh, within government. But you're not in government, so do you think heads will have to roll? I think there has to be accountability to restore trust. And like, I can understand, like I was asking the Taoiseach about it in Le- at Leaders earlier and he was saying, you know, I, I don't doubt the bona fides of individual members of the board. That's not a direct quote, quote but you know, that kind of. Um, but like the question I was asking was like, do you have confidence in the board in its entirety, in the board as a collective that didn't even know how many barter accounts there was that... Clearly hasn't been forthcoming. One of the confusing with information. things about RTE is it has two boards. So is this the I'm talking board, about the executive the board, board. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just don't know how we can have confidence in the executive board as a whole at this point when we still don't have all of the information. Mm. And you know, RTE have known about this since the beginning of March. I think Shunmi Wackley actually is making that very point before the committee uh, as we speak. I just got sight of her uh, of, of the address that she was going to give to it. Just on the broader picture, and this is not an excuse for any of the behaviour that's been uncovered so far, but there has, you know, some have argued, I think Michael McDool was doing this in his column in the Irish Times this morning, that um, you can trace a lot of this back to the failure of the Irish political establishment to grasp the kind of the nettles that are definitely there in terms of how you fund public service broadcasting. And indeed, what the role is of public service broadcasting in in the internet era. And there have been reports and committees and commissions, you know, several of them over the last 10 years, and nothing has really been done about that. What would the Social Democrats do about funding public service broadcasting or public service media, I suppose we should call it now? I think public service broadcasting is more important now than ever in a, in a space where we have lots of misinformation and stuff like that online. And especially over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about exactly that, Hugh. You know, should this be something that's funded through revenue? Because you feel everybody's understandably and rightly outraged because everyone has a stake in this. We all pay our licence fee. And to see that that's the kind of carry on in the organisation. Well, 85% of us do. Yes. Sorry. Most people pay their their licence fee. Um, But if you consider then, um, for example, if we funded it through revenue, Hmm. then you kind of have to future-proof plans. And I just don't think we could necessarily know what's going to happen in the future. And you could have a situation where there's government who then press on the public broadcaster in a particular way to do things. And I think that's like a very risky business. And truth be told, I don't think I actually have the perfect solution, but I wouldn't switch to that. Um, because to I think a we direct need... exchequer funding yeah. because it erodes the independence. This was the it argument does. out of government even when RTE wanted it. RTE wanted it because it would be more money. They okay. did, but although they had reservations about it, I think their ideal was a charge that applied to all households, regardless of whether or not they had a telly and they wanted it raised by the revenue. But that's a very unfair form of taxation because it's entirely unprogressive. Everybody pays the same amount regardless of their, more... of their income or their means. So there's that argument. And the other point is whether this reveals the fact that there's a there's a dichotomy between the public service obligations and the sort of commercial activities of a commercial broadcaster, which RTE carries out. And if that involves buying flip-flops. five grand's worth of flip-flops, mm. well, then so be it. <laughs> I guess there is, there's a lot to be hashed out and I think look, it needs to be more examined. We need to have more public engagement in, in what the best way to go forward with it is. I think like people have a lot of opinions on this. I've heard more like say just around 
Of course, what's I your, what's your the weekend. They do, for sure. But what's your what's your opinion? And My opinion is that it can't be through revenue directly from government because of the potential for a government that might use that in their favour in the future. And that would go against the entire premise of having a public service broadcaster. But does that mean then that some sort of, whether it's the current TV licence arrangement... Uh, are a broadcasting charge that's levied on all homes, irrespective of whether they have a TV, that that has to be larger in the future? Or does the organisation have to be smaller? Because if we're if the organisation is not going to get any more money from the public, and that seems to me to be a very difficult sell uh, at the moment as part of the solution to the crisis that RTE has created for itself, that the solution should be more money from the uh from the public, uh, I can't see any government of any political stripe going for that. But if the organisation doesn't get more money from some from somewhere, this then is a typically the organisation typically long partly he questions. Then the organisation is going to have to be <laughs> smaller. I think people right, are questioning Mr. that Mark. now, though, because they've been into the Oireachtas time and time again, kind of with the poor mouth. We need more money. We need this. We need that. We find mm. out that actually there's loads of money in the in these barter accounts that are. Topping up the salary of the top earner while saying they absolutely have to introduce, you know, pay freezes, have people on bogus contracts, all of those things. So I think people are really questioning that now. And I think it's time we have a thorough examination of Ortiz Finance to see where they are at. But I certainly wouldn't be saying, I don't think it's reasonable to say that people should pay a TV licence if they don't have a TV. I don't think that's fair. But in a way, and finally on this mm. point, I know this is actually your special subject, not mine. It, it is, I know, um, I'm leaving it to you to but, put today. But it's, it's kind of, there's a question of, 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 of sheer arithmetic, you know, that yep. unless RT gets more money from somewhere, presumably the state or the public in some guise or form, then the organisation has to be smaller. Smaller in what sense that we don't have kind Smaller, of not as two point not so two many people billion to pay. flop yeah. musicals and stuff like that. Well, I mean, I guess <laughs> I look, we're all look, going to have great. We fun have to examine with the barter account over the next couple of weeks as the details of the flip flops and all that comes out. I suspect none of it will be actually material to the finances of RTE. I think we need to examine the funds of RTE, how it's spent, and see where we're at. Then you know, um, but you make a valid point. Perhaps there isn't enough there. I'd like to see the figures. Of course, this is not why we invited you in at all today. So really, please, let's, let, let's move on and consider the, the Social Democrats, whom, whom I should say, and I was saying this to Pat before we were, were doing our recording today, uh, they've had a pretty good run over the last 12 of, of, of the um, leaders of, I don't call them small party leaders because that seems to imply <laughs> something about their stature, but of the leaders of small parties. Um, you guys are doing the best at the moment. I know it's all margin of error stuff when you get down to these uh, these proportions, but you're coming out ahead of the Greens and Labour and PPP um, and your own personal popularity rankings seem to be seem to be pretty good. So far, so good. Yeah, look, like uh, we're not going to get ahead of ourselves. You know, small parties, all of us have a lot of work to do to build and to grow. And my focus is really that to not just build the party, but you have to earn people's trust in order to do that and in order to kind of retain anything you achieve in the polls. So it's kind of an everyday thing rather than something you ever take for granted or, you know. Um, so our focus is really building on that now. Like, you know, people talk about that like a bounce and we've, you know, we've had a change in leadership and we've had stuff like that going on. So we have to take that into consideration. And I'm very grateful for that. I'm so glad that it's better than it not happening. But of course, a bounce insinuates an up and then a down. So it wouldn't be something you'd be like gleeful about if that's what it is. What I want to do 
is to keep building and to really earn people's trust and try and keep it. So the question, I suppose, then, which we've put to the other leaders of the other parties when we had them in, is we're now in the the long glide in, I, I suppose, which will ultimately end up at the next general election, but there'll be in a local election and European elections um, along the way. Um, are you, how confident are you that you can build on the pretty good result that you had in the last local elections and the even better result that you had in the last general election? Like, have you got seats targeted? Do you have numbers in mind? I don't have numbers in mind. Okay. Um, I'm really ambitious for the future of the party. And I've said that from the beginning that I'm unashamedly ambitious about it. But I think confident about a particular number or something is a whole different thing. Because, you know, having gone into the role, I think is it about three months since I've gone into it. Like we can feel lots of support and goodwill and all of that stuff. But that has to translate into finding good, strong candidates to stand. And with that, you need not that many, but a few strong supporters around them to take seats. And that is much harder than maybe your listeners might imagine. And one of the reasons that I decided that I was going to go for this role, because I did make like a list of pros and cons and definitely the cons. Well, like Bertie Wooster does. I don't know. Sorry, go on. (laughs) Um, The cons outweighed the pros in many ways. But I think like I can feel it. I think you guys can probably feel it. Everybody can feel it. This is a change time in Irish politics. The tide is turning. We always look at the polls and the different results. We also don't look very often at the number of people who are undecided. And I feel I can really relate to those people because only four years ago I was at home working my family farm. I actually listened to this podcast. I think it was kind of my graduation into politics, listening to the Irish Times Women's oh podcast. <laughs> then I started listening to the Inside Politics podcast with the Irish Times, you know. and Which do you think was better? Oh, the Women's, women's oh. Podcast. Well, we all know that. Yeah. <laughs> Only serious questions. Okay, Pat, from now on. <laughs> um, and I just think there's a whole, like, load of us in Irish society who don't feel engaged with by politics, who don't feel heard, listened to, felt by politics at all. And I was one of those people only four years ago. So I hope as a new leader of the party, I'll be able to reach those people. But trust me, it's not easy. And particularly when we're trying to engage people in terms of, because I think if you potentially think, if your listeners do, that politics isn't for me, whatever, that's the person that I'm trying to reach because politics affects all of us. You may not have experience in politics, but you will have experienced politics in your life, be that a waiting list, unable to access support services for your disabled child. You name it, there's loads of different things. There's loads of people out there who would make amazing candidates. It's about representation that we haven't seen, that we desperately need in order to make better policies. And so I'm trying to say to people like, if you feel like that, And particularly we find this with women and the Social Democrats have more uh, female councillors proportionally elected than any other party. The same with their TDs. We're very serious about, you know, engaging more people in politics in general. You often, it's across the board, women have to be often asked and then asked again and potentially again. To find those people and to be able to do that is a huge job of work and we're working really hard to get to that. But when I'm asked then, do you have a number? I'm like... No, I don't. I'm not avoiding the question in a kind of politician-y way. I'm saying, 
We'll go for some and then we'll go for more and we'll keep going for more. And but, I think if we get them, but our rather, potential no, is huge. You, and I'm not asking yeah. you for a number that we could then turn around in a year's time and go, ah, you didn't hit your <laughs> you number. Didn't get it. It's more just that one needs these kinds of targets internally. Doesn't want to be, be, one needs targets in order to Because a small, a small party, you can't be competitive and you're not going to be competitive, as you know, in all the 40 constituencies. So you are going to have to zero in on a, a handful of constituencies that you have a realistic chance by dint of, of their... Uh, their demographics, the amount of votes available in those who else is running and having a candidate that can carry the party brand in that uh, in that constituency. Yeah, and the starting point, I think, for that is the candidate because, as you both know, we've got the redraw of the boundaries and all of those things. Mm. So targeting areas specific to the current political landscape isn't necessarily something that will be the reality when the election comes around. So starting with trying to find the candidates and reaching out to people is literally what we're doing. And obviously with the local elections coming up first, uh, that's the strong focus for us at the moment. And then I also always think like, I would never have been one of those targeted seats, one of those targeted candidates if we only viewed it in those terms, which of course we take into consideration, don't get me wrong. But in a three-seater in one of the most rural constituencies in the country, like sure, I was written off right, left and centre. And I just think we need to stop always just underestimating like rural communities in particular and presuming that everyone in those areas is just conservative by default, all of those things. It's not true and it's a little bit insulting. I think there's a a view that's kind of the status quo about particular constituencies and areas and I don't buy it, you know. (laughs) Can I ask you what is your pitch to those people, both to the voters that you're trying to locate Mm. outside of your current uh, centres of 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 popularity, but also to your candidates. What are you telling them? Because you, the polls would suggest mm. that, you know, in this period of your uh, of your leadership, you've got the attention yeah. of, of some people. So what are you using that attention for, that opportunity for, to tell them? What are you telling them makes the Social Democrats different? Because the left is very congested space. As you know, the opposition is a very congested Space And it seems to me that for parties to be successful in in that space, they're going to have to have a distinctive pitch. What's yours? I'm saying to to those people you're speaking about, and thank you for the opportunity to address them to your listeners, that this is the time in Irish politics. The tide is turning. (laughs) We can all feel it. We need to grasp this. I really want to be a part of it. We really want to be a part of the change. We want to grow the party, but we can't do it without you. So if you too want to change a progressive one, the same kind of one that I want, which I will explain in a minute, please get involved. We cannot do it without you. The difference, and this is a really important question, I think, between us and other political parties and, you know, you could say, oh, there's not much of a difference between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael policies. There might be a different culture. There's not much of a difference between, for example, the Social Democrat policy and other smaller parties on the left. I can go into particular policy differences, if you'd like, 100% after this. But let me say this. For example, I wouldn't be in politics if the Social Democrats didn't exist. Because the old parties and the old style of it and the everything about the kind of the, the demographic makeup of all of those parties did not appeal to me. It wasn't a political home for me when I looked at any of them. But because the Social Democrats were an option, that is why I'm sitting here today on your series of leaders' interviews, 
because the Social Democrats are different. And that's evident, not just in the kind of makeup of our TDs, that it's predominantly um, elected women and that's on our local authorities as well, but it's also how the party operates. Like Catherine and Roisin laid an amazing foundation for me to step into. I feel so lucky and grateful. Just to give one other example, if I imagine going in as the leader of another party where there has potentially been a heave or knives and backs or all of these kind of things, I don't think I could do as good a job. To have the support of Catherine Roisin and the rest of the parliamentary party is further evidence of the kind of difference in the way the Social Democrats operate. We're more collegiate. We all get on really well. We make decisions together. It's not particularly hierarchical. Even from the day that, because we went from two to six in the last elections, we're also growing very quickly, which is a nice thing that's different about the party in a way, is that like then also Catherine Roisin, you'd see like always giving us the promised legislation slots. This kind of not not egotistical, like they would really push us forward. They gave us a great chance. We have a different way of doing things. And I just think as one example, how can you govern a society that promotes equality if it doesn't even exist in your political party? It doesn't make any sense and people don't really believe it. The party's different. We do things differently. And that has a big impact, I think, how we would govern. But what if your potential voter were to turn around and say, yes, I do want to see a change in Irish politics. Yes, I do want to see a a shift to the left in the focus of the next government. Yes, I do want to see certain movements towards social equity. I also want to see uh, the first female Taoiseach in the history of the state. And that's why I'm going to vote for Sinn Féin. So many people will, and we can see that. And I think a lot of Sinn Féin's growth has been created by a void left by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Same mistakes over and over again. And Sinn Féin were seen as the only party big enough to fill that gap. And people would say to me <clears throat> all the time, that's it, I'm sick of it, I'm actually done voting Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. One of the really interesting things about voters in Ireland, I think it's different to other countries. And we'd all see it, anyone who's canvassed especially, the people say at the doors like, I'm Fianna Fáil. Like they'd say, I'm Irish. It's ingrained, it's deep and we identify with it almost like a religion. So people changing their votes is quite a big thing and it's taken a long time you know 100 years now since the foundation well, of the all, state it's all happened quite really, quickly for most, most of it has happened in the last 15 years yes so there's a whole bunch of People votes out changed. there that yeah. were previously by virtue of historic yeah. uh, allegiance were if not owned, then certainly presumed upon by those parties. But that's Although that's I'm just going now. to be an awkward counter to that and just say that, that most of the seats that are currently occupied by Social Democrats, with the exception of your own, are seats that were held for a very long time by the Labour Party. Yeah, Labour in, well in, in many cases. In, long time in, ago. In Dublin Central, in Wicklow, um, Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shortall were both Labour TDs in their own time. So it's not necessarily this extraordinary, you know, breaking of the mould. No, but say the void that was created at that point, people had lost trust in the Labour Party, people who had voted for them. And what people say now quite often, and you you probably hear it as well, I want to change, I'm, I am sick of being a fallen Fianna Gael, but I don't want it to be Sinn Féin. A lot of people don't. And I think that's why there's a space for another party. Is that, your, is that your space then? So, and what are you doing then to differentiate yourself from, both from Sinn Féin, but also from the other competitors who are also in that non-Sinn Féin left space? There's huge differences between us and Sinn Féin and other parties. And I just highlighted one in relation to we've we've a different kind of culture as a party in general. And I think that's something that's very but in, important. In, in, in a but way, in you can of, have that kind of collegiate yeah. uh, culture when you have six 
six TDs. You know, Mary Lou MacDonald can't do it because she's got 36 TDs. You know, you can't, you know, have a collegiate leadership when you've got that many TDs. You know, the need for leadership and for executive decision making comes with size too. You're talking about the difference between us and other parties on the uh, smaller parties, but absolutely, I completely understand that. But in terms of the difference between the Social Democrats and Sinn Féin, it's not just about our culture and the way that we work. But take climate, for example. I don't think that you could say, oh, there's no difference between voting for us and voting for Sinn Féin. Um, I'm not clear on what Sinn Féin's climate policies are. I'm not clear on what climate action would be taken in a Sinn Féin-led government. Um, and there should be no ambiguity about... Interestingly, all the, part, all the parties of the left, the biggest issue. all the leaders of the parties of the left who've come in as part of this series have said something similar about Sinn Féin's, as they see it, undeveloped or over-pragmatic approach to, to, to climate policy. Is that going to be a red line? Because I know that, um, I mean, your party makes no bones about the fact that it doesn't want to be a party of opposition. It wants to be a party of government. If it's going to be a party of government, it's going to be a minority partner, perhaps along other minority, alongside other minority partners as well. Would you see as part of your your job in that situation being to hold the line on, on climate change measures? It's the job of every public left representative at this point to ensure that we take climate action. And the fact even just this morning we had a debate in the Dáil on the nature restoration law, the fact that we're even having debates about will we or won't we on climate action and protecting biodiversity is actually outrageous when you So that out. means keeping a carbon tax despite Sinn Féin's policy on carbon tax? It would mean that. But the thing about it is as well is like what Sinn Féin um, are doing like arguably is kind of moving more to the centre. They don't want to say, have hard lines on things like climate action in case it kind of loses them vote. It probably suit them a lot to have a smaller party that would be the one pushing things like that. So it could be... So you the, could be the equivalent of the Greens in the next government. <laughs> you no, know, um, I'm sure it suits them. But I think the thing is, is that a lot of people don't trust the policies that might be implemented in Sinn Féin and government. And I think a lot of people would like an alternative. I think choice in politics is so important. And why not offer people more trust? I mean, imagine if we as a party said, oh, should look, people can vote for Sinn Féin instead. So we'll just duck out. Like, is that the question? Or or do you think that we're the same as Sinn Féin? Well, is there a danger there at all? Because again, God, I've mentioned the Labour Party again. I shouldn't do this, this, this so much. But you we'll know, for many, for many years, they were criticised for being the mudguard on the, 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 on the centre, one or other of the centre-right parties, that that was the way that they presented themselves, that they were going to keep manners on those parties and stop them from doing terrible things. So you could trust them to go into government. It's not necessarily the best place on the political spectrum to be for that, though. No, it? not at all. But I think, like, the political, like, we just talked about how much change is happening in the last 15 years and people see all of these things at play and it doesn't come off in the same way anymore as a result. And so I think even this this move by Sinn Féin to kind of appease everybody and say what they think people want to hear to get votes is like a move towards the centre. It's kind of People feel like it's becoming the the new Fianna Fáil, being everything to everybody, like what way is the wind blowing and, you know, this kind of thing. And I just think because Ireland has experienced all of these different styles of politics, there is now more of a value on an honest style of politics, partly that will vote for a carbon tax um, and will also say that it will take climate action. And it's not credible to, to speak outside both sides of your mouth on these things. And crucially, the most important commodity, I think, in politics is trust. And that's something that like a lot of parties don't have. And I think that's why like there was space for a new party in Irish politics, because like, trust me, 
like I didn't go into politics for the crack. I think I'd rather be back in West Cork. I don't think Roisin and Catherine decided to start up a party. It's no easy feat doing that, the amount of work involved. But it's because we believe that there is a space for another political party in Ireland. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> We're going to take a very quick break because we have a lot of Havana flip-flops to sell. And in order to do that, we need some money. In order to do that, we need you to subscribe to us at irishtimes.com. Um, just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We'll be back after this. You're listening to the Irish Times. And you're very welcome back. Pat, I think you were, I had to stop you in mid-track there. Well, so I, I'm just interested in this, this idea about trust that that you raise because one of the things that people would often say that destroys their trust in politicians is when they say something before an election and uh, and then after the election they cut a deal uh, to go into government and they end up doing something else now to my mind that's actually part of the essential it's part of the you know the essential function of politics in a multi-party parliamentary democracy is to, you know, coalitions are formed, people compromise with one another, they reach an accommodation and program for government and they agree to, uh, they agree to stick to it. But it does require parties to be very clear with their voters, if they are to maintain trust, I think, on what, f- what policy areas they regard as non-negotiable and what policy areas or objectives they regard as, uh, as negotiable. So, uh, you know, if you were in discussions with Mary Lou Macdonald after the next election, you would find, uh, I think, that a, a revolutionary change in the state's attitude to the achievement of a united Ireland and to the holding of a, a referendum on, uh, on a united Ireland would be one of the things that for her would be, um, uh, would be a non-negotiable. Uh, what would be your non-negotiables? Slaunch care is a non-negotiable. But, but everybody's kind of committed to slaunch care though, aren't they? Well, you can say you're committed to slaunch care when there was cross-party agreement on the plan. <laughs> uh, it was estimated that it would take 10 years to implement it, which so everybody recognises these things don't happen overnight. It's now five years later. We're not that close to seeing an implementation of slaunch care. We're certainly not halfway through. So I guess when I Do talk about... Do you think they were fibbing from the start? <laughs> I think there's a lack of political will. You can kind of say, and this is why when you say like, what's your picture? Whatever, a lot of political parties say exactly the same thing. We want launch care. We want this many homes built a year. And that's why I think it's important to talk to people like your listeners about the actual difference in approach. So a red line issue for us is not launch care in kind of broad terms where it's not actually implemented. I don't know what that kind of a red line is. If everybody says it's a red line for them, why aren't we seeing it, Pat? You know what I mean? So... I mean, I mean, you are seeing some some aspects of it, but the the, the big foundational idea of Slaunch Care is, uh, you know, the achievement of a one tier public health system free at the um, uh, at the point of access. Right? And since I've been elected, we've seen further privatisation of care for older people. Right, but that necessarily involves the achievement of that one tier system. Necessarily involves a separation of public and private uh, healthcare, and that is the big sticking point for. Uh, for an awful lot of politicians because they're very reluctant to take the advantages of private health insurance out of the public system, not least because it's terribly disruptive for the provision of uh, of health care, but because 50% or so of the population have private health insurance. And if you want to implement Slauncher Care in the lifetime or complete slaunch care in the lifetime of, say, the next government, you're going to have to accelerate the chucking out of private health care from the public system. Are you prepared to do that? 
Completely. It's where I didn't know what Slanter Care was. I think the fact that we have a two-tiered system whereby one child is more entitled to healthcare than another based on how deep their parents' pockets are is fundamentally wrong and unfair. And to make changes, sometimes it's not easy, but it is 100% necessary. And if you went around and asked take a sample of 10 Irish people out in the street there and said, do you think there should be a two-tiered system whereby one child is more or less entitled to healthcare than the other? They would say no. So it's about taking difficult decisions and pursuing them really adamantly if you want to make change. You Not see, I half-heartedly suspect, I suspect, implementing social care. Pat thinks that this is one of these situations where a lot of Irish people speak out of both sides of their mouths and what that while they're in, while they're, they're what I'm trying to say, support yes. universal health care, they are in troll, perhaps to vested interest within the system itself and, they won't and also to other people it. who and value that, their own. You had like her making it. the same point because just what like I'm it. saying, it is a red line for the Social Democrats. Roisin Shortall was chair of the Social Care Committee. That would require a, a new consultant's contract, of course. A new one from um, the one that's just been... Proved. Do you want to know the rest of my red lines or will we keep arguing keep about Slaunch oh, Care? Yeah. I assure your listeners we would implement Slaunch Care as a red line, not okay. in the same way that apparently this government is doing it. And I recognise there has been a start made. Um, other red line issues are climate issues. There is no way we can continue with this kind of dilly-dallying and arguing about whether we will or won't. We need to really narrow this discussion down to how quickly, right now, can we take this action? Um, housing is the main reason we didn't stay in any further programme for government talks the last time. The approach was the same. Obviously, we'd like to see a very different approach to housing policy. Uh, another, probably the first thing that would go would happen in the in the talks because it's the most immediate and I think pressing issue for us as a country on the whole. We can see from the the summer economic statement this week that it's holding us back in so many ways. Do you think you'd be need- closer to, say, for example, these negotiations where with Sinn Féin, do you think you're, the two parties would be closer on that issue than perhaps on others? On housing? Yeah. I would think so. Yeah. Um, sorry, um, any other red lines? Did you get through them many, all? Many, but I think it's important to... <laughs> okay, you don't want to just, be creating too many. With them, you? Would you leave it off? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but like a, a really big red line issue for me is disability support services. We've... I've worked in disability support services abroad. It was one of the things that really spurred me to go into politics to see how good services can be and how absolutely desperate and disgraceful they are here. And at a time when government can't even spend its budget to think that there's people on waiting lists not getting the early intervention they need that literally transforms your entire life. Parents at the end of their tether of all the people I've met through this work Parents of disabled children are the most at the end of their tether, the most tortured by state policy. And there's never been a meaningful attempt to do that because like that, every party will say they want to do it. But the department's own capacity review said, um, this is a year or two years ago, that they would need 350 million to meet the unmet needs of people with disabilities. I would suspect it's more than that. Then they allocated about 65 million. So that's not a real meaningful attempt to address this. And in a country that's as wealthy as Ireland, it's inexcusable it continues. And one of the things that I really find in this work as well is that like organised lobby groups have a big impact on politicians. I get contacted by them. They meet me. They're very effective in their arguments, all of these things. The people who need things the most don't have time or aren't able to organise a lobby group because they're so stretched and pressed and disabled people are among the most stretched and pressed down to things like the transport allowance. That was slashed in that Labour government with Fianna Gael. They still haven't introduced something to replace that. 
The list goes on and on. We don't have one fully staffed children's disability network team in the entire country. There's 91. We wouldn't send out our, our women's Irish team going over to Australia with a few people missing. That's not a team. <laughs> None of those disability network teams there. And then because we've had a government that has consistently pushed individualism, private privatisation of public services, the people who can afford it, go and get it privately. And the people who can't, it's like Solange Care, can't get it. Nobody thinks that's okay. We're in a country that can address this. We have to change it. I wanted to ask you about another issue, which is not necessarily directly a party political one, but it's one you've been quite vocal on, which is the the fact that the um, the population of Ireland now and the various beliefs of people, religious or non-religious or whatever they might be, don't conform to, for example, the educational system that's provided for our children, which is still hugely dominated by uh, religious education, primarily by by the Catholic Church. And you've been critical of the lack of divestment that's gone on there, the lack of transfer of, of schools to a, a more multi-denominational system. I do wonder what, what, what you do about it. I mean, I've seen, I mean, some conservative commentators have, have said, I think probably with some validity, that the main thing that's holding this up thing up is that parents aren't shouting for it. So, yeah, and there's loads of validity saying it's not easy. And mm-hmm. what's happened in places is that, because um, the, the church have said, yeah, we're up for divesting. And the state have said, yeah, we're up for divesting. And then what's happened is they go into a community and say, what do you think about divestment, parents of children in school who parents who don't want their children's education system to be disrupted. Do you want to divest? Let's have a vote. And parents go, oh, what's the alternative? We don't have that. And they vote against it. Like, that is a consultation system designed to fail. So So what should happen? Well, I think there should be... There's been a lot of consultations. Rory Quinn was trying to do this as well, and they ran a couple of pilots. um, They ran a couple of of, of pilots around the country. And the result's been more or less the same in an awful lot of them that they did then and that they've done since. And it's that people are generally and conceptually in favour of a more secular state largely, but particularly in this instance, uh, an education system. But they're very happy with, by and large, with their own kids' school the way it is and they're not sure if they want to change it. But in those uh, in those pilot projects talking about, they didn't give people the alternative. And I think that did have a really big impact because you're right, most people do want to change. And look, I was, um, you know, not baptised and in a Catholic school. So I agree, like I, I really liked my education, I loved my school, all of those things. People are happy with it. But there's no need to have that religious aspect to it where, you know, the, where the teachings are things now that are very out of touch, like so, anti-gay, so you, think, you know, all of this kind yeah, of stuff. So you think that, uh, and full disclosure here, I've, yeah. I've very recently been on the board of an Educate Together CDDP school. Yeah. Um, so I kind of have some interest in in this subject. But you you just think that people aren't being given the right choice or it's not being clear to them what that choice is? Or? Yeah, if you want something to be successful, for one, you go in with real engagement, really listen to people, explain to people what the alternative would be, how that would work, what measures would be put in place to make it as smooth as possible, that it wouldn't impact on the children, that the teachers are all briefed on this and up to speed and happy with and all of those things. Like, there's very, like, in in anything you're going to do in terms of making a change, there's a way of doing it that's bound to kind of land flat and a way of doing it that has a much better chance of succeeding. And realistically, it's hardly going to be the case that people go, you know, all of the research and all of the, the data and everything that's been collected, people really don't want, you know, edu- 
religion necessarily in an education system. But then when it comes to it, they've suddenly changed their mind. I don't think that's what's happening. And I think we all know that. And like, if there was a... Well, look, we, we do for, have, as we identified earlier, we do have a fairly highly developed capacity for doublethink in the country. But also when you think about this as well, I just remember like... If we're looking at um, down the road, you were talking earlier about um, uh, United Ireland. One of the things that has come from the research is that secular education would have a really positive impact on the potential of that in the future. That there wouldn't be the kind of segregation of everybody into separate schools. And then when people go into secondary school, it's very clear who was in which school. There's so many benefits that could be kind of born out of this. And I think we can't... Is it possible that the whole, I don't spend too much time on this, but that the whole the whole um, system of school patronage in Ireland, where the, the state, even though it funds the schools, remains at arm's length, partly for self-protective reasons, that maybe that's what militates against, you know, any possibility for change? I think it's, there's a drought of ambition to really change it and to really, for the state, to, to take the kind of schools into their hands because there isn't even a clear, like when I was saying that, if they're doing consultation and they're saying, well, this is what happened, what would happen. They're not even clear if it would be Educate Together, the ETB, and there needs to be a lot of thought put into that. And that hasn't happened before the consultation process has gone on. So I think that's where the clear stumbling block has been. And if the state was really focused on this happening and encouraging the divestment of schools, well, then they would be looking at that. But they're not because they're not ambitious about it. One of the things you have to care most about in government is uh, where you spend your money. How big is your budget? How do you raise it and, uh, and and what your spending priorities are? What did you think of the uh, summer economic statement yesterday? I guess it's, it's, a, it's worrying in its analysis, but also it's nothing we didn't know, but that kind of... In what sense? ...acknowledgement mm-hmm. of, well, that we don't have the, the infrastructure, the workforce. It highlights all of the things that haven't been happening for the last 15 years or so. Proper workforce planning, you know, for construction, for healthcare for all of those things. And I just hope that there's then a shift towards that, <laughs> addressing that in the budget properly, that we start to properly workforce plan. And in, 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 in terms of the, like the overall balance of, uh, of the expenditure plans, so the government's going to spend an extra $6 billion. Billion on, uh, on on budget date, that'll probably rise a lot. It's going to save $12 yeah. billion. So Are you broadly in tune with that approach or would you have something radically different? Like the 4 million in spending versus the 1 one in 1 billion in tax cuts I think is better than what I maybe would have expected but I also wouldn't be convinced. When you, that say, when you say better? Better. I would have thought they like that the approach when you see like the Fine Gael Minister's columns about uh-huh. tax cuts and all that, that, but look, I'm not convinced that when it comes to budget day, there won't actually be more on tax cuts. I'm pretty sure that, the, like, you could suspect there probably will be. But our approach wouldn't be tax cuts like that. If you're going to do that, should be tax credits, so it ju- doesn't just benefit people earning over 40,000 because at a time when we're in a cost of living crisis, it's all about targeting and all of those things. It's, it's, I think it would be better in the form of tax credits that everybody benefits from rather than just people earning over 40,000. But like in the context of the current government's financial situation and the huge amount of kind of extra money, like one off, you know, that it can spend, I think it's a huge opportunity for them. And I hope that that's really a focus in terms of like, 
you know, we've always seen this kind of, and, the, you know, like even in the last budget, it's like one-off payments. It's like kind of buying people's votes, giving people back their own money, <laughs> billion of your own money back to you all in a small amount each. And like people are a little bit like sick of that approach now. I think people want the tax that they pay to be put into things that then kind of makes life more affordable for everybody rather than continuously having to collect so much from the higher earners to, to bridge the gap to the lower. Like there is I mean, an sure, appetite for a change in the always, approach. So I, mean, there, I would know, do things differently. Okay, there, you know, there's always room, there's always room in the margins. But on the broad thrust of government fiscal policy, which is to minimise the amount of money that it spends on tax moderation, basically, because they're not big swinging tax cuts. It's tax moderation to increase uh, permanent spending by uh, about 6%. There will be, ministers acknowledged yesterday, a bunch of one-off things uh, in the budget, but to save the nearly all of that big surplus. Yeah, you, there's, there's capital investment as part of that's the other part of that mix as there's, well. Yeah, there? about two billion or so extra capital investment, which is perhaps more than is bearable, you know, or more than more than spendable. But that's another that's another question. But are you broadly aligned with the economic approach of the government or not? Well, like I said, we would do it differently. We would do but tax credits, not how, tax cuts. How differently? Because that doesn't sound to me like it's very different at all, actually. Well, you it know. is different if you're well, one of those people. Because they're actually saying they will do just, you know, they're just going to adjust the, 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 the credits and they're not going to cut the rates. They're not going to reduce the amount, they're not going to reduce the tax take. They're just going to, um, uh, uh, they're just going to index the bans, right? And so. Did they say they're changing the index? They're going, to, they're going to index the bans so that if you, so the, the rate at which you enter... They'll be indexed for inflation, as yeah. they need to be. Not fully, in inflation not fully for inflation, I guess. Yeah. But. Exactly. But what I'm saying is, broadly, we would do it differently because at the moment, the tax cut is for everybody earning over 40,000. And we think that a tax credit that would affect everybody under and over would be a better so approach. So a tax credit which would, then, which would include an actual proactive payment for some people if they weren't paying tax at all, in other words. Well, under that, it comes back to your payslip. So I don't think you would get it if you weren't working, but it would be for all workers so rather than people over 40,000. Like, you know, you reduce the USC or something that would affect all workers. Yeah, but I'm just yeah. saying it's a different approach. And then okay. like in terms of then like the overall spending, if we have this surplus at the moment, mm-hmm. and I think what we would do with that in government is invest it in something that brings in consistent money because it's a one-off payment or consistently reduces people's cost of living. So for example, that was invested in green energy that you know we could be like leaders in this none of our ports are even ready we know that there's a lot we could do and a lot we could invest in and then get money back from that on a consistent basis to do things like pay pensions to do things like build childcare facilities that are state owned and eventually state run to make it cheaper for everybody to live life here, to invest in. We have the, the, the money is there for Sloan Care. It's the do it bit that's different. We actually spend more per capita on health than any other country in the world. So we don't even need to find the money to do Sloan Care. It's the will to do it. But like it's changing the approach broadly. Yes, we would do things differently. Wouldn't be about spending in that moment and tax cuts, people see don't don't appreciate that approach anymore. I don't see it as effective when we should be building infrastructure that improves our quality of life, but also our cost of living. You know, there's when there's a big surplus like that, there's an opportunity to invest in something that consistently gives back to the state. Last question. Um, you just appointed a deputy leader. 
Uh, is the job a very demanding job? Does it need to be spread a bit more? What's involved? What's involved in being the leader or the deputy leader? Both. Both. Um, it is a big job. Like there's a lot Kim of different things to think about. Um, but it was more like I, uh, I couldn't think of a reason to not have a deputy leader. You know, why, why wouldn't you? <laughs> um, well, if you're a collective leadership... Well, to a certain extent, yeah, we do all make the decisions together. But um, like Catherine Roisin, I think, proved the kind of value of having a co-leadership in a small party that's growing. Um, you can be in, you can literally be in two places at once. And I think that's really important to to, to spread as much as we can in that sense for for different things. And like Kean is a standout TD and parliamentarian from the moment I joined the Social Democrat at the time, he was the national organiser. And so he would have been a point of contact for me in terms of my local election, my general election. Um, he's an amazing sounding board, a font of wisdom, really knowledgeable um, in relation to all things politics. And I feel like, you know, being a good leader is about having people around you who are really good at what they do. I don't think it's about trying to do everything yourself. Do you I think enjoy that's the definition of not being a good leader. Do you enjoy being a leader? <laughs> um, I do, I think. I haven't really um, stopped to reflect on that, Hugh, I don't think yet. But uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's very full on. It was more like um, when I was deciding to do it, it was like if you flip a coin and it lands one way and you just, that doesn't feel right. Like I just felt like the need to go for it. Um, right. But I okay. don't That sounds like, a bit like Boris, how Boris Johnson decided he was in favour of Brexit. <laughs> but, uh. um, but like I don't love say um, like there's loads of parts that I don't like I think. Like say the first time doing leaders questions stuff I'm almost like I don't like I'd be nervous and I'd like rather if somebody else was doing it and the same with like going on media things or like I'd be nervous coming in here today. So all of those things like I think there's a lot of aspects to it that I, I wouldn't describe as things that I enjoy. <laughs> but I hope that it's worth it <laughs> because the aim is, you know, we want to build the party. We want to get more councillors and TDs in seats. And it's that arithmetic that will be the defining factor in whether or not we can make any changes in a government. So it's like, just focus on that. <laughs> That's the whole point of it. And then it will be worth it. Well, you'd be delighted to hear that we've come to the end of this interview without me asking the obligatory question in all interviews with, with Social Democrats about uh, amalgamation with the Labour Party. We haven't asked it and we're not going to ask it this time. So that might be a sign that we've moved on uh, to um, to some extent. Holly, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks to Pat for joining us. Our producer was Declan Conlon. Uh, we'll be back with you very soon indeed. Thanks Thank for listening. You.